out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. And so I'll be getting, be beginning the chapter 13, Silver and Gold. This is uh, Willful Blindness, as written by Sam Cooper. Just need to log in here on my device. KCLS Library kicked me out. I said, you can't have this book anymore. I had to buy it. Buy it from Barnes & Noble. Which is proper, because that's what I had to do. Okay, so silver and gold. Jen apparently is the biggest client for the law firm, Alderson told me. And in Victoria, sitting in the coffee shop, we talked about something else that blew my mind. Some investigators in GPEB had lost faith in the integrity of the BC government or possibly a mole in the RCMP. They believed a raid on Jin's underground casino in Richmond had been compromised. Okay, before I continue, I just wanted to let you guys know that there will be an opportunity to speak after the reading. It is enabled. So for a moment, it looked like Vancouver's Sun editor in chief Harold Monroe was going to blow a gasket. I was seated across from Monroe and, and feature story editor Hardip Johal in the Sun's editorial boardroom. It was seven, September 15th, 2017. I had just rambled through a laundry list of evidence, which must have sounded incredible to say the least. A vast story had come together very quickly, threads that I had been following for years, and I was struggling to explain it all. In early 2017, I had been guided towards BC Gaming Enforcement Branch intelligence documents on a casino money laundering network involving the mainland China real estate developers I had been digging into. And a BC government source had sent this email. Lapsang Peter Pang is connected to Big Circle Boys. You may also want to look at a guy by the name of Paul King Jin and also Quok Tam. Big crime figures in Richmond, sus- suspects in illegal gaming, extortion, loan sharking, drug trafficking, and underground banking. Also acquiring real estate. I had made a number of freedom of information requests based on these tips, and I was expecting to receive a massive cache of GPEB documents within days. But after meeting with Ross Alderson on September 12th, I already had a tremendous amount of evidence. Sitting in a coffee shop near Hotel Fairmont with the view of Victoria's Inner Harbor, Alderson and I had talked about the RCMP's investigation to Paul Jin. We talked about how Alderson's team had made property ownership maps in Richmond and Vancouver. They found pockets of extreme wealth where the big circle boys in mainland China's VIP owned lots of land. Mansions sprawled across Richmond farmland were running illegal casinos according to Alderson's intelligence. The illegal casinos and BC Lottery Casino loan sharks were directly connected. Alderson told me that many millions in high-value casino chips had gone missing from River Rock Casino. This was essentially BC government currency that flowed between Richmond illegal casinos and government casinos. It was a store of value for organized crime underground banks in Vancouver and China. And it was much easier to carry a purse with 40 chips worth $5,000 a piece than a hockey bag with $200,000 worth of 20s wrapped in elastic bands. We discussed how Alderson perceived political connections between mainland China high rollers and officials in China. I also knew that some police believed transnational organized crime had corrupted portions of BC's establishment. Alderson told me there was an RCMP intelligence theory that Paul Jen had links to Chinese Communist Party. And he said he found the theory hard to believe at first, but gained credibility in 2017 after Richmond real estate lawyer Hong Guo directed a police investigation in Zhuhai that led to arrest of Guo's employees Qian Pan and Zixin Li. Jin apparently is the biggest client for the law firm, Alderson told me. And in Victoria, sitting in the coffee shop, we talked about something else that blew my mind. Some investigators in GPEB had lost faith in the integrity of the BC government or possibly a mole in the RCMP. 
They believed a raid on Jin's underground casino in Richmond had been compromised. The information we were discusses, discussing pointed to a scandal worth of a public inquiry. So when I returned to Vancouver, Alderson arranged to transfer classified documents. These were official government records about investigations into Paul Jin and the Chinese VIPs. The numbers were massive. The operation was worldwide. It was the story of a lifetime. Harold Monroe had been an investigative reporter before rising to the top editorial position for Vancouver Sun. In my opinion, Monroe loved big, hard-hitting stories. And the bigger the story, the harder the harder his vetting questions. He would come at you like a lawyer, looking for weaknesses. So in this story meeting on September 15th, I was trying to boil down incredibly complex information. And Monroe seemed to be losing patience. I can imagine what was going through his mind. How the hell can we prove this? After some cross-examination, we were at an impasse. I took a deep breath, pulled a sheet of paper from my binder, and shoved it across the table to Monroe. It was a Section 86 report. The legal form must be filled out to GPEB when Lottery Corp staff learn of potential crimes. This was Alderson's unredacted July 2015 brief on the Paul Jin Silver investigation. Monroe started to read the document with a frown, and I sat waiting. The report was just a few paragraphs, but each sentence was weighty. Within about 30 seconds, Monroe's mood had brightened considerably. And when he finished reading, he was smiling. We talked about Alderson's documents and how they would be buttressed by the GPEB records due to arrive any day. Monroe told me to drop all my other stories and focus on the BC casino files. No one outside the story meeting knew of the explosive records I had. At the time, we didn't know BC's government was battling internally over my GPEB disclosure case. The conflict revolved around an audit of River Rock Casino commissioned by GPEB and completed by the forensic accounting firm MNP. This was a high-level report on the problems that allowed suspicious cash to flood BC casinos. Really, it was an accountant's overview of the RCMP gin investigations. For months, I had been negotiating to obtain this report and thousands of related GPEB records. But for some reason, BC Attorney General David Eby had decided to release the MNP audit to all media outlets ahead of my legal disclosure request. And BC Lottery Corp executives panicked. An email chain I later obtained through Freedom of Information showed their efforts to modify the MNP audit. On September 20th at 5.59 p.m., Lottery Corp Board Chair Bud Smith, a former BC Attorney General, emailed Lottery Corp. CEO Jim Lightbody and Chief of Compliance Robert Croker. Colleagues, I just took a call from the minister's office. Apparently, the FOI process is about to release the MNP on money laundering, Smith wrote. The minister wants to release it himself and phoned to give a heads up. I said... Send what is going to be released, and if it's what I think it is, there's an Ernst & Young report, and I believe a FinTrack report that was done around the same time and likely modified some of the MNP conclusions. Lightbody emailed back, but the minister's assistant also called me, and it is the MNP audit. It doesn't include our management response, which is a problem, The report is challenging at best. It was commissioned by GPEB. The email chain shows that Croker, River Rock Casino's chief of compliance from 2011 to August of 2015, pushed back on MNP's conclusions. The MNP audit covered the period of September 2013 to August 31st of 2015, Croker wrote. This audit focused only on select transactions at River Rock. We were not consulted by GPEB prior to the FOI package going to the minister. Certainly, I was not given an opportunity to comment on redactions. Kroger would later testify in BC's money laundering inquiry that while he was in charge of compliance at River Rock, feedback from FinTrack on BCLC's money laundering controls was positive and Great Canadian continually endeavored to improve its controls. Meanwhile, panicked Emails to EB's staff about MNP's audit continued. 
Sam Godfrey, I've reviewed the MNP document you sent. Lightbody wrote September 20th. We are very concerned that the report does not include our management response that we provided, which is the usual practice, and provides balance and perspective. On Thursday, September 21st, I learned that the MNP audit, part of my FOI request, would be released publicly Friday morning. I had been working on, on the underlying story for months, and now bureaucrats were trying to manage how the information would be disseminated. I had no idea that the Lottery Corp brass was trying to undermine the MNP report, but I was concerned. I called a government official Thursday evening and complained. There wasn't much I could do. But it was arranged that an embargoed copy of the MNP report came to me that night. The report was heavily redacted and named no names. It was obvious why Lottery Corp hated it. GPEB had commissioned the MNP audit because an investigation identified approximately $13.5 million in $20 bills being accepted in River Rock in July of 2015. And MNP's audit tied the funds to the Richmond Casino Loan Sharks and High Roller Asian VIP clients. The report said River Rock staff had fostered a culture accepting of large bulk cash transactions. And because the VIPs were from China, it was difficult for the staff to judge the legitimacy of their wealth. Chinese nationals, sorry, Chinese nationals comprise the majority of the identified high-risk demographic at River Rock, the audit said. Interviews have confirmed that VIPs are indeed wealthy, non-residents, or business persons with interest in Vancouver and China. Coming to Vancouver to gamble. The use of possible underground banking operations using large volumes of unsourced cash have become increasingly common and accepted as a convenience feature for VIP players who may not be able to send funds to Canada. And it was all about BC's government turning a blind eye to suspicious money. Accepting large volumes of cash has been a growing problem in the province for a number of years, a report said. BCLC is accountable to the province for revenue. Service providers are focusing on revenue. I broke the MNP audit story Friday morning, but my real work started on Saturday morning. I had documents that named names. I had ultra-confidential fin track records. I could connect the Big Circle Boys Casino Loan Sharks and Chinese Whales to major real estate lending networks. I could pull back the curtain on a scam that had been covered up for decades. I could tell the story of largest RCMP money laundering investigation in Canadian history, and we had a week to pull it together. The Vancouver Sun front page exclusive ran on Saturday, September 30th, and I started the story like this. On October 15th, 2015, a Mountie burst through the front door of an office in Richmond, carrying a battering ram and with a rifle slung on his back. The door swung shut behind him, locking him inside. He was in the lobby lobby of Silver International Investment, a high-end money transfer business surrounded by bulletproof glass. Behind a second glass door, a woman rushed to make a call while hiding a several cell phones. Under her desk was a safe stuffed with bundles of cash. The Mountie, a large man, counted seconds anxiously, wondering if the woman would unlock the interior door. It was one of 10 police raids in Richmond that day, part of a major investigation that had uncovered massive money laundering and underground banking networks with links to mainland China, Macau, and BC casinos, alleged the RCMP's Federal Organized Crime Unit and now China's National Police Service. Now inside the story... The inside story can be told of investigations that led BC's Attorney General last week to order an independent review of casinos overseen by the BC Lottery Corp. The story focused on Paul Kang Jin. I have never been able to interview him after repeated attempts to reach him through lawyers, but Jin had left a massive trail of incriminating records. Through dozens of interviews with people in business and law enforcement, and after obtaining and studying many thousands of government, legal, and corporate records dating from the early 1990s to 2020, this is what I learned about Paul King Jen's background and function and a global criminal network that extends all the way to Beijing. Dot, dot, dot. Shibao Jia came from a poor family in the eastern province of Shandong 
It was a hard life. But boxing saved him. It made him resilient and tough. The gym gave him somewhere to be. And when he had no money, he told people the coach let him sleep on the floor. He was a prospect for the Chinese Olympic team in the 1980s. He didn't quite make the cut, but he did learn a lot. He told people that if China had put any money into pro boxing, he might have stayed there. But instead, he came to Canada. He was in his late 20s when he arrived in the early 1990s. He gave himself an English name, Paul King Jin. Colleagues say he spent some time in Montreal before saving enough money to start the Water Cube, a Richmond massage parlor. His co-director at the Water Cube was a triad heavyweight from Guangdong named Lapsang Peter Pang. Peter Pang had big interest in illegal casino networks in Richmond and Markham, according to RCMP and GPEB Intelligence. His name had come up in a number of 1990s heroin and weapons trafficking investigations in Vancouver. According to confidential informants, Peter Pang was right up there with the lights of Kwok Chung Tam and Chi Lop Si and Big Circle Boy's hierarchy. He was obviously superior to Paul Jin. An intelligence source told me Pang once roughed Jin up and told him to get his act together when something went sideways in the Richmond illegal casinos. Jin and his family members, including his wife, mother, father, and niece, constantly shuffled Richmond director addresses for Jin's various businesses, including the Water Cube and the Warrior Fighting Dream, his mixed martial arts gym. But other directors listed addresses in Beijing, Qingdao, Guangzhou, and Harbin. And after about 10 years in Canada, Paul Jin was near the top of Richmond's underworld hierarchy. But there were men high above operators like Paul Jin and Peter Pang, according to my RCMP documents and intelligence sources. These were the business giants, sorry, these were the business giants who owned mines and skyscrapers and ships and forests and highways in China. Men well-connected to China's state and military and judicial elite. Men with access to ports in Qingdao, Harbin, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Hong Kong. To put it another way, an intelligence source told me a sort of power shift was playing out in Canada. The southern Cantonese-speaking cartels may have had more autonomy in the early days of the Vancouver model. Just a moment... Can you guys hear me all right? I realize that my my volume might be low. Can you hear me? If you can hear me, just say something or send a little emote or something. Okay, let's go up. Can you hear me now? How's that? Is that better? Thanks. Okay, great. So, to put it another way, an intelligence source told me a power shift was playing out in Canada. The southern Cantonese-speaking cartels may have had more autonomy in the early days of the Vancouver model, but after 2008, the state-sponsored heavyweights of northern China appeared to gain influence over their networks in Vancouver and Toronto. So, there were Chinese state actors that Jin served. They were his patrons and bosses. Business relationships in Canada were formed in playgrounds advice, Chinese community, and RCMP intelligence sources that explained this to me. It was powerful guanxi. You want to come to my spa in Richmond and play with some girls? No problem. Want to play Baccarat in government casinos? Even better, lay bets in our own private VIP lounges and cash out winnings at Redmond Currency Exchange shops? How about a guided safari to kill some black bears? We have special relations with some Canadian officials, so don't worry. It's all taken care of. We can even ship polar bears, polar bear mounts, and hunting guns back to you in China. You'd like to develop some Vancouver real estate? Easy. Mingle with elite Canadian politicians in our China-Canada Friendship Association fundraisers. Done. So for Jin, this was beyond social networking. He was so connected, it would be more appropriate to use the terminology of computer networking. Jin could be called a super node. He was the intersection, a crucial facilitator for many people and markets. According to my documents, a Mandarin speaker in Richmond who knew Paul Jin and saw him in action 
Jin had found his true calling in life, a broker of vice for powerful men and a facilitator for their Chinese state activity in Canada. And because of this, Shi Bao Jia became someone in China. He rose from sleeping on gym floors to demanding the best seats in China's most expensive restaurants. And he acquired assets, a factory, bank accounts, homes, a mine in Mongolia that provide his Guanxi with powerful cadres. So when the RCMP finally questioned Jin about his casino exploits in Richmond, he bragged about his ties to high-level officials. In China, I'm in too important, right? The, poli- the police officer is high-level, very high. The prime minister is high enough. My classmates are very high-level in China. And in Richmond, according to the RCMP, he had sta- a stable of high-end cars and multiple condos and an illegal casino mega mansion and a couple of bodyguards. This lottery corp even had a file called Project Sienna, named after the fleet of vans he allegedly used to move cash and $13 million worth of Mystic River Rock casino chips between legal and illegal casinos. The RCMP had known long before Shiba Jia arrived in Canada about heroin shipping routes and heavyweights like Kwok Chung Tam in Vancouver. In the 1990s, the North American police knew underground banks and vast pools of heroin wealth were massive business. But for Jin's generation of big circle boys to reach the next level, BC Lottery Casinos needed the necessary infrastructure. It was a simple equation. If betting limits for Baccarat in Vancouver and Richmond could compete with Macau, BC government casinos would become attractive to the transnational whales. And so limits were raised. Exponentially, in British Columbia from the late 1990s to 2014, Baccarat bets starting at $25 per hand before 2000, despite many money laundering warnings, peaked at a devastating $100,000 per hand in 2014. Of course, suspicious cash transactions rose exponentially too. And Lottery Corp. CEO Michael Graydon loomed over his executives like a taskmaster, his terse emails stinging like a whip. He ordered his executives to meet revenue and cost targets or their bonuses would vanish. Was there a financial motive for executives to turn a blind eye to hockey bags stuffed with suspected drug cash? Well, around 2007, GPEV started to notice the northern China whales coming in. Ripples throughout the industry, indications that something big was moving under the surface. Suspicious cash transactions were skyrocketing year to year, but it took a decade before RCMP investigators fully understood the machine behind it. Uh, da, da, da. Silver International was hiding in plain sight. It was a terribly brazen operation. It was right in your face, down the hall from Richmond Law Offices. And that's why RCMP was able to document such a steady traffic between the cash bank and downtown Richmond and River Rock Casino. All they had to do was follow Paul Jin's fleet of Sienna vans in an incredible beehive of daily activity. From Silver to Jin's underground casinos to Hong Guo's offices to various Chinese restaurants across Richmond, Jin and his bodyguards were always on the move. And sometimes with Jin's child tagging along. In late 2017, two years after RCMP tactical units raided Silver, in a Vancouver conference room in INSP Bruce Ward, Inspector Bruce Ward, sorry, briefed a private audience. The crowd included U.S. Secret Service agents, financial professionals, and Canadian police. This was information important to the Five Eyes intelligence allies, especially Australia, the U.S., and Canada. I obtained a secret audio recording of Ward's presentation. This was the crucial record that took me into inside the RCMP's e-pirate investigation and helped me understand all of the leaked paper records in my cache. Silver is an illegal money laundering service for criminals, Ward said, and how they were facilitating the purchase and import, importation of the drugs by moving the money around the world for drug dealers. Ward explained to his audience that first, to understand Silver's networks, the RCMP had to understand Asian organized crime in Canada and its connections to China. 
This is not an organized structure with command and control, Ward said. It's more about business relationships because it operates very much parallel to the normal business community. Through surveillance and confidential informants, RCMP intelligence had learned that narcos, loan sharks, illegal casino operators, and BC Lottery Casino money launderers, lawyers, realtors, mortgage brokers, immigration fraudsters, and corrupt politicians all networked for mutually beneficial transactions. So you as a member of that community become trusted because say you conducted a deal two years ago for some people and it worked out, Ward said. So any given gangster, if you want to call them that businessman, he'll have many schemes and thus many networks. And I learned of these networks and honed my techniques for following the actors. Pictures can be very important advertising of Guanxi between gangsters, politicians, and, prote- and professionals. And these network actors love to post pictures of themselves get- raising glasses of red wine at galas attended by Chinese consulate officials and Canadian politicians. The political element would be something I delved into after understanding the narco element. And the narco network had an ever-present problem in Vancouver to what to do with massive amounts of warehouse drug cash. So this networking is what facilitated the business for Silver International, Ward said, because they were able to start a profession of money laundering for their friends in drug dealing who needed the service of converting cash into bankable instruments. But Silver first had to collect the cash. A number of businesses clustered into a few downtown Richmond blocks were seen by the RCMP intelligence as the geographical supernode of drug trafficking circuits in North America. And Silver was in the middle of this heat map, a 10-minute drive from River Rock Casino. When the RCMP discovered Silver's location in April 2015, undercover teams identified at least 40 different organizations entering a Richmond office tower and ascending to Silver's third-floor office with suitcases laden with cash. Most of the organizations were dealing heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines, Ward said. Silver was collecting drug sale deliveries in deposits totaling about $1.5 million per day. The RCMP considered itself lucky that BC's fentanyl crisis was not yet full-blown when they discovered the underground bank and seized over $9 million in cash. We broke our money counters in the process, Ward said. It was... It was fortunate that we seized this money before the fentanyl crisis because that is dangerous dust that comes off of the money. Silver was not Fort Knox. It would not have looked, it would have looked no different from a fancy dentist office with its see-through glass walls and leather couches. But few people would have known those walls were made of bulletproof glass and in the back regions of the office, suitcases of cash were strewn across the floor. The paper money piling up daily in silver would have reached the ceiling within a few weeks unless the staff found a way to move it quickly. And that is where the genius of silver came into play. In mainland China, each citizen is barred from exporting more than $50,000 per year. There is an incredible pent-up supply in China's banking system seeking to break that financial wall. And Paul King Jin Silver International and some Chinese industrialists had a solution and a business model called Macau. Dot, dot, dot. The glittering city on the western shore of the Pearl River Delta is called the Las Vegas of China for obvious reasons. Macau had been a hub international of trans- transactions for centuries. A former colony of Portugal transformed into an outlet valve for vices banned in mainland China. It is a special administrative region for the Chinese Communist Party where casinos are legalized, the majority of GDP is derived from casinos, and the opulent gambling palaces have eclipsed Las Vegas in profitability, producing from 30 to 40 billion US dollars each year in revenue, at least three times more than the casinos in Nevada. This is where China's 1% elite state figures and red princelings come to gamble and shop. In China, it is widely reported that corrupt officials have colluded with Hong Kong and Macau triads to transfer state funds in and out of Macau through underground gambling junkets. And the scandals have reached all the way into China's Politburo. 
a handful of CCP bosses who run the world's second largest economy, as illustrated by the cases of China's former national security chief, Zhu Yongkang, and Bo Shi Lai, a North China governor so popular that he was considered a rival to Xi Jinping. Both leaders were linked in reports to Macau gangs and organized crime junket operators before each was convicted on corruption charges. In the case of Zhu Yongkang, who had control over uh, China's police and security forces, investigator linked his family to a flamboyant real estate and mining tycoon named Liu Han. Liu Han had amassed a fortune of $6.4 billion and operated mines in Australia and the United States before he was tried and executed in 2015 on allegations that he had risen from petty thug to billionaire. His mistake had been his brashness and violence. With his fleet of luxury vehicles, mink coat, and the facade of an industrialist was easy to see through. And before his death, the public learned he ran a cartel operating illegal casinos in China and laundering money through legal casinos in Macau, as well as trafficking weapons and providing contract killing services. Zhu Yongkang, Liu Han, and Bo Xilai were all taken down in sweeping corruption probes launched by China's President Xi Jinping. And in 2015, Macau's GDP fell by 26% as fear of Xi's corruption probes expanded. That even Xi's family had been linked to the vices of corruption, offshore wealth, and foreign casinos. A joint investigation in 2019 by Australian media revealed that Xi's cousin, an official named Ming Chai, was identified as a VIP gambler in Australian casinos with links to a prominent organized crime junket boss. And these junkets were connected to Chinese foreign influence and espionage networks. So this is the demographic of VIP gamblers that have helped build Macau's wealth for decades by skimming funds from China's underclasses and making alliances with narcos and loan sharks and spies abroad. Dot, dot, dot. The Silver Network Macau-style money laundering investigations finally gained focus with BC Lottery Corp surveillance of Paul Jin at River Rock Casino in 2014. Confidential records that I obtained from FinTrack show that Paul Jen was banned by BC Lottery Corp casinos in 2012 for suspicious lo- transactions and suspected organized crime loan sharking. One of his associates, according to the Lottery Corp record, was called Suspect One in an RCMP organized crime target list that called Jen Suspect 22. Suspect One listed his occupation as shipbuilder. Suspect 2 claimed to be a Chinese restaurant tycoon, and Suspect 3 was a crowdfunding developer from northern China whom I had been following for a few years. Anyway, the 2012 Lottery Corp ban on Jin was meaningless. Attached to this email is a collection of the top 10 money facilitators that work out for the lower mainland Chinese casinos with a majority devoted to Red Rock patrons. A confidential 2014 Lottery Corp record said, of course, Paul Jin is the number one target and is currently banned, but is extremely active and has numerous people working for him. Paul Jin's Lottery Corp investigation file says he had tight connections with the VIP Baccarat players. He also frequented Grand Villa Casino in Burnaby and Starlight Casino in the New Westminster, the records say. One record produced by Alderson alleged that several phone calls had been made to Paul Jen originating from the Grand Villa Casino in June of 2015. Records also showed that GPEB investigated the casino's VIP staff for meeting with Jen and discussing an investment in the Starlight's VIP room. Jin was fronting for an unidentified real estate tycoon in China. A lawyer for the casino claimed that the meeting was was really about a real estate developer uh, near the new Westminster Casino. And one of the company's VIP's hostesses was investigated for introducing one of Paul King Jin's Chinese whale gamblers, Mr. Fu, to a known loon shark. In 2014, one of Alderson's Lottery Corp colleagues noted 
Most of the players that Jen had supplied cash for are known VIP players with extensive gambling histories and considerable wealth with mostly Asian-based businesses. In almost every instance, when Jen has supplied cash for a patron, the cash has been in the form of large amounts of bundles of $20 bills. And it would take some time before Calvin Cressy's Federal Organized Crime Unit linked River Rock Casino and Silver's Cash House in downtown Richmond. The break came on April 29th of 2015. We've done about four more days of surveillance on our friend, all day shifts, and we made some interesting observations, a police detective emailed to a lottery court casino investigator. I was wondering if you have any new sighting, sightings from the last week. Within weeks, the RCMP would connect the dots. Paul Jen's crew was making cash deliveries to the Chinese VIPs at River Rock Casino. The cash was coming from Silver International. Drug trafficking organizations were driving in from across Western Canada to Richmond every day with suitcases of cash. In one case, drug dealers from Alberta were nailed with $1 million cash stuffed into two suitcases. But where were the casino VIPs coming from? And how was Paul Jin connecting with them? That would become apparent as the RCMP investigation extended outside Canada. You only had to track Paul Jin's flights out of Vancouver to find the answer. Bruce Ward explained the international leg of the e-pirate investigation to his private audience in September of 2017. Quote, The primary target that led us to Silver International was a person that is involved in generating whales, Ward said. Whales are high-end gamblers. So Paul Jin's expertise is going over and working in Macau and identifying rich Chinese businessmen that would go to Macau. And he was attracting them to Canada to gamble, end quote. When Paul Jin met these men of great wealth, such as Jia Gao, real estate developer who frequented the Venetian Macau, Jin would tell them he was a junket operator in Canada and that he could take care of them in Richmond. And it was a neat shell game trick how they got the money out of China and into Canada. In fact, the money never crossed borders. Jin and Silver had pools of drug money sitting in Richmond and China. And the VIP funds were sitting in Chinese banks. The VIP gamblers would arrange a contract with Paul Jin and Silver to deposit funds from their own China bank accounts into China bank accounts controlled by Silver. This gave them a credit in the underground banking system. And when they flew from China and landed in Richmond, they would call Jin's hotline and arrange to meet his agents in parking lots near River Rocks uh, Casino. All they had to do was lug their bags of cash into the VIP room. Paul Jin would charge the Macau VIPs from 3 to 5% per transaction for the underground service. And a $100,000 cash payout in Richmond would co- coincide with a $105,000 wire transfer from the VIP's bank to Silver's accounts in China. He would use Silver International as a bank account, Ward explained. He would get that cash and they would break it up into whatever the order of the day was. They would put $100,000 into a hockey bag, show up at the casino, and then give the, the whale gambler $100,000. Or the transaction would flow the other way. If the whale was a member of the cartel or an associate with Guanxi and elevated status in China, like a powerful official, they could travel to Richmond and take out a gambling debt obligation. The bags of cash used to buy casino chips would be paid back later from the VIP's bank account in China into Silver's bank accounts in China. Or the transactions were run through illegal casinos. For example, Paul Jin, in his own BC Supreme Court filings, said that he carried a large bag holding of 2.68 million cash into a Richmond coffee shop and loaned it out to a, a Chinese real estate developer who is identified in RCMP investigation files. The real estate developer, in turn, said the cash was related to a gambling session at Jin's illegal casino. Real estate owned by the whale in Richmond and secured by a promissory note was to be used as a transfer of debt in the money corp or in the money laundering scheme 
Uh, Lottery Corp investigators also found that Jin's network was funding River Rock Casino Wales with cash provided by currency exchanges in Richmond, and the VIPs could cash their Lottery Corp casino chips for casino checks, according to RCMP and GPEB records, and then deposit the funds into Canadian banks to buy Vancouver real estate. This was the easiest way for drug cash to seep into luxury homes. In totality, silver was incredibly complex because the variety and path of transactions seemed endless. But the core service was incredibly simple. Credit and debts were adjusted in the black market banks, separated by thousands of miles with transactions never recorded on government ledgers. Ross Alderson would explain it in this way in his September 2015 lottery Corp. money laundering report. From BCLC investigative interviews conducted with VIP players, BCLC has been able to determine that for a number of players, they readily admit not to not knowing the source of their cash and that they pay back in suspicious circumstances using suspicious methods with little or no interest, the document said. This would indicate transnational money laundering. So these VIPs admitted, at least, that they didn't know where Jin's cash came from. But they were not stupid. They knew how the game worked in Macau. Were they narcos themselves? They bet cash like it was going out of style. Like they didn't care whether they won or lost. Or like the real point was to keep the cash flowing in and out of the casino. Like, even when they lost on paper, it was just a win. Or just overhit. A cost of doing business. Ward's audience started to laugh when he profiled one notable Chinese industrialist. We interviewed one, our primary gambler, over a two-year period. He gambled and lost $57 million, Ward said. He's living in Canada, but he owns a series of mining conglomerates in China. So his concern about the $57 million is that he didn't tell his wife. Not because she was going to get mad at him, but she would go out and spend $57 million herself just to pay him back. This comment was entertaining, but I don't think RCMP got a straight answer from the miner. I had found that a coal miner known as the biggest whale in Lottery Corp records was involved in the Gin Group in a complex cash and real estate lending through Las Vegas, Vancouver, and China. In other words, Vancouver model underground banking. What kind of businessman would bet like this? According to GPEB, there were 60 to 80 whales of this magnitude in BC. At any time, men who bet from $100,000 to $1 million per session the names would change from month to month. Usually a businessman would gamble for a few months, return to China, and then come back again. The staff at River Rock was allowing this, and BC Lottery Corp. wasn't doing anything, GPEB sources said. I believe it was almost being encouraged. They were flying people in. They were helping people in comping rooms. We said to FinTrack, what are you doing? And then... The RCMP came to similar conclusions. If you were able to provide the simplest of excuses or explanations as to where the cash came from, they were happy, Ward said in 2017. Matter of fact, if they were happy, they would not even fill out a FinTrack report. My example is the BC Lottery Corp had identified in the year leading up to our e-pirate file about $180 million in cash that had came into the River Rock Casino. So that is bags of cash we've talked to the businesses uh, we've talked to the businessmen it's not cultural there's no reason in canada to carry more than you and i carry in cash gaming intelligence documents prepared by ross alderson and gpev's special constable scott mcgregor painted an even bleaker picture of the whales and their helpers inside bc casinos Uh, There are likely people in the regulated BC gaming industry that are involved in facilitating proceeds of crime for players. Alderson wrote in a document prepared for Lottery Corp management in 2015. A criminal investigation could uncover a criminal element directly linked to BC casinos. There should be a concern that BC Lottery Corp and service provider management 
will be accused of willful blindness. Two years after that assessment, McGregor prepared an 11-page intelligence report for GPEB after a River Rock Casino VIP host was investigated for a suspected money laundering transaction. There was a large third-party buy-in in late 2017 where a brand new patron walked in with $200,000 in $100 bills and waited to receive chips. Once the chips were delivered, the patron left the casino without any play. McGregor, McGregor's report said, This incident is being investigated for regulatory infractions at the River Rock Casino. This incident is highly suspect, and the ongoing GPEB investigation into this matter is the first step in identifying the correlation of connections between service provider staff, local patrons, foreign patrons, and illicit activity. Still, in late 2017, the RCMP had only limited knowledge of who the silver VIPs were. When we take down an elephant, or in this case, we digest one leg at a time, is how senior RCMP officer put it to me. But in 2019, when Alderson summed up his findings and notarized filings, he presented a more definitive portrait of the silver whales. He wrote that during 2014 and 2015, while BC's fentanyl crisis was evolving into a public health emergency, Lottery Corp casinos were accepting from 17 to 22 million in suspicious cash transactions per month. Being in charge of Lottery Corp investigative and intelligence groups, I gathered evidence that many of the industry VIP players were involved in criminality, including the drug trade, as well as suspected money laundering and real estate, casinos, and other sectors, Alderson wrote. There were also evidence of political involvement by a number of these individuals, and there were indications of government interference in the enforcement and possible corruption, dot, dot, dot. So on October 15, 2015, Bruce Ward's unit raided 10 locations in Richmond, including Silver and International Investment, and the office tower on 5811 Cooney Road. It was an extremely successful raid in most aspects. Silver was a high-tech operation. The RCMP seized 132 computers and cell phones, transaction ledgers, safes, and money counters, over $7 million in cash, and a high-security camera footage that captured massive cash exchanges in cinematic detail. We were very lucky because one surveillance team started the file, but they didn't have an understanding of what was going on inside, Ward explained to On My Secret Audio Recording. We didn't have a chance to use covert teams to see inside of the business, but they had their own internal security system, and we were able to seize two weeks of their tapes. And over 1,000 pages of RCMP surveillance and seizure records filed with the Cullen Commission outside, or sorry, outlined the moving pieces of Jen's ops in stunning detail. Police seized many banking records and real estate promissory notes and mortgages from Jen's properties. They also collected legal documents and prepared by Hong Kuo. These were the legal registration papers that Jin and his wife, Xia Kui Wei, allegedly used to take collateral against Vancouver mansions for massive cash loans. One of the real estate documents seized from Jin was a $1.2 million promissory note from one of Jin's River Rock VIPs, and Jin's wife was interviewed about the lawyer involved. So the time that Paul didn't get his money back. Did they pay him back eventually? A Vancouver police detective asked her. Not always, Wei answered. Sometimes some person just gives our house to us. So Hong Guo is a la- the lawyer that helps to facilitate us or helps arrange the-, the signing? Yeah, Jin's wife answered. Surveillance records showed Jin dropping into Guo's office several times as he made his daily rounds in fleets of vehicles, taking bags in and out of restaurants, withdrawing suitcases of cash from silver, making drops and exchanging in parking lots and running in and out of the Watercube spa where Jin's illegal casino clients came to pay when they lost on the credit they drew in in his gaming dens. So RCMP also seized invoices with score sheets and garbage bags. Wow. Records from RTY Financial and receipts from West Coast Hunting. 
When a police dog searched five vehicles seized from Jin, including a Bentley Continental, a red Porsche 911, and a white Toyota Sienna, all tested positive for narcotics residue, surveillance records showed that for one complex transaction in a Richmond Costco parking lot, a vehicle registered to YZ, an an alleged fentanyl trafficker involved in real estate lending with Jen, appeared to make counter-surveillance maneuvers before a bag was exchanged from the trunk of one of Jen's vehicles. There was an incredible amount of evidence. But back in October of 2015, already there were troubling sides of an investigation that would ultimately implode. The underground banking portion of the raid caught the staff red-handed, allegedly, but strikes on illegal casinos did not. They had two ongoing illegal casinos where the same businessmen who were part of the conspiracy provided non-government gambling for those for these offshore gamblers, Ward explained while showing the images of two luxury properties. These are some of the illegal casinos he was setting up. Each of these places had significant security cameras and systems. When we did our takedowns, one place was closing down. Four days later, on October 19th, Alderson heard from a senior BC police officer that RCMP was concerned that Lottery Corp had interviewed whale gamblers in Jin's network ahead of the raid on a sprawling hacienda on 20-plus acres of secluded farmland on Number 4 Road in South Richmond. It was the city's second most valuable property, worth about $10 million. The RCMP seemed to be questioning whether the Lottery Corp had leaked plans to VIPs, who then communicated to Paul Jen about the upcoming raid on the Big Circle Boys Casino. The underground casino on Number 4 Road, complete with tennis courts, swimming pool, and six full bathrooms had 29 surveillance cameras, and it was hastily abandoned. Discuss sensitivity and sharing information as operation was compromised. Alderson's notes from the meeting with senior BC poli- uh, police officers says, Number 4 Road location had original warrant date October 5th, 14th circled on a calendar. Concerns government knew more than senior police did, but it wasn't clear from Alderson's notes who could have leaked the raid plans. Talked about how any info government was through RCMP except for the list of players and locations of gaming houses were given to GPEB, Alderson's notes say. We were aware of briefing notes written to Minister, agreed that interviewing players highlighted Jin's involvement, However, locations of gaming houses were all provided to GPB, agreed that a lot of people had inside knowledge of this operation, but reiterated no one, to my knowledge, knew of any dates of the operation. So according to Alderson's 2015 records, it looked like a mainland China drug cartel with possible connections to Chinese officials had access to the most sensitive police intelligence and operational details held by the RCMP. In Canada's largest ever transnational money laundering investigation. And as far as Alderson knows, there is still no indication of who is responsible. After a series of police raids on illegal gaming houses had been conducted in Richmond, BC, I was party to conversations where there was a belief by some members of law enforcement that the raids had been compromised by a leak. Alderson wrote in 2020, possibly within their ranks or within government. The fact that big circle boys may have access to Canada's most sensitive law enforcement plans is tragic. But considering the sheer scale of Silver's alleged operations and his clientele in China, Mexico, and Iran, it is terrifying. In his 2017 presentation, Bruce Ward explained the opposite arm of Silver's cash lending services for whale gamblers. It had evolved into a financial juggernaut allegedly capable of laundering and moving over $1 billion per year for the import and export of drugs. All of this emanating from an office tower in downtown Richmond. While playing video evidence, Ward explained how drug dealers instantly make their mountains of dirty cash in Canada materialize in bank accounts in China, Mexico, or Peru. 
It started with a phone call and a visit to the criminal vault. A single woman standing behind a desk with a cell phone and a ledger. That was it. No bodyguards with guns. This is a typical event of a drug dealer bringing in cash, Ward said, as a video clip played. She receives a call. She goes out to receive a trusted customer. There are hundreds dollars and 50. There's hundreds and 50s. The vast majority is 20s. The relationship is such and trusted that the phone call is made. I'm coming in with, in this case, it was 1.4 million. And the staff will wire transfer the credit for that in China before the cash even comes in the door. In other words, as Silver recorded a cash transaction in the ledger of, of its Richmond criminal bank, it would simultaneously send instructions electronically to credit the drug dealer's bank account in China with a fund transfer from one of Silver's bank accounts in China. Bruce Ward's video clip showed the drug dealer dropping off his duffel bag of cash in Silver's Richmond office, and then she counts it by hand, Ward said, writes it down in her ledger, double checks the money is the same that they said by phone. Five minutes later, she's at the end of her shift, and she walks out and locks the door. There's no security because no one would know it's there or dare rob that place. According to the RCMP's forensic investigation, Silver turned $220 million in drug cash into bankable instruments in Canada in its first year. Most of this was laundered through BC casinos in Wales. But $20 million of the cash was provided to downtown Richmond currency exchanges. It was an excellent illustration of how the Big Circle boys have slowly infiltrated banks in Asia by commingling clean and dirty money. This definitely causes concern, and it is a bigger issue in the future because this is a legal business of transferring money on behalf of you and everyone else between countries, Ward said on my audio recording. How they do that is they have a safe with cash under the till. Your grandma wires you $30,000 for your birthday. You go into that business, and they can send you $30,000 to your bank electronically. Or... They will give you cash and give the customer a premium, so you get $31,000 cash. So where do they legally get their cash? From the banks. But where do they illegally get their cash? From organized crime. How do you tell the difference? So Silver had mastered laundering illegal casino extortion, prostitution, and drug cash through VC casinos and real estate using the whales that wanted to invest their Chinese wealth in Canada. But Silver's move into narco supply chain logistics, also connected to China's biggest whales, appears to have been its highest growth business. When RCMP took the Richmond Underground Bank down, it had already set over 600 bank accounts in China, and the accounts were multiplying exponentially. What Silver started to move into is facilitating the purchase and importation of the drugs, Ward said, pointing to transaction records. So this is a typical request, a director, a direction from Silver International to move money from their own account to a drug dealer's account, and we saw evidence of over 600 accounts in China that were controlled or fed by Silver International. So they would do that on your behalf. They would open up an account in China You give them $100,000 in cash in Richmond, and then they wire transfer you $95,000 to your account in China. Talk about a disruptive innovator. In Vancouver, drug dealers with fentanyl precursors suppliers in Wuhan or Guangzhou would have silver wire transfer funds to cartel accounts in China. These funds would result in more fentanyl arriving in Vancouver. Drugs would be sold, cash collected, funds wired to China, and the cycle repeated. And if these dealers had cocaine suppliers in Mexico or Peru, they could have Canadian banks wire transfer funds to drug dealer accounts in Latin America. This way, the traffickers selling in Canada could buy drugs in Latin America or China without assuming the risk of packing cash into a suitcase and boarding a plane. Fake trade invoices from Chinese manufacturers covered the wire transfers. It was a Chinese organized crime variation of what the FBI and the DEA call the black market peso exchange. 
This is also known as the trade-based money laundering, in which drug shipments are made to look like legitimate products or commingled with legitimate products. To the bank, it looks like a North America-based importer-exporter is building something like t-shirts or coffee beans or electronics when they're really buying cocaine and fentanyl. So if you work for banks, you are facilitating money laundering, Ward told his audience while pointing at silver wire record. So they are sophisticated enough that they will hide behind this false invoices. And I'm paying an invoice to somebody from China who supposedly sold me something. And I'm paying for it, in this case, to Peru. And then the supplier will release for transport the narcotics. This all meant that Vancouver had become a global tool for buying, selling, and shipping cocaine, heroin, methamphetamines, and fentanyl, and rinsing the proceeds in local and international real estate. And it wasn't just the big circle boys and Chinese whales using BC to operate. My RCMP sources would discover the world's most violent narcos, including Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, Sinaloa cartel, and narco-terrorist networks connected to Iran were multiplying in Vancouver and using Silver's brilliant money laundering machine. So... As I broke story after story, in late 2017, the RCMP and BC government were in a tough position. They had no control over the information. I knew police believed Chinese transnational gangsters had corrupted significant portions of BC's establishment. It wasn't just Lottery Corp casinos police were worried about. The RCMP wanted to hold a press conference to inform Canadian citizens what they learned in e-pirate. But when senior police officials briefed NDP government officials on the plan, the press event was canceled. And that, my friends, is the end of that chapter. Woo, what a world. I just wanted to remind everybody you can tune in at 7.20 p.m. uh, Monday through Friday, typically. Um, here at Colin.com to the Unsanctioned Citizen podcast. That's where we are reading the Unsanctioned Your Mind Summer 2022 series, which we are reading, the Willful Blindness uh, tome. Very interesting stuff, especially that piece about El Chapo Guzman. Um, Very, very revelatory, sorry. Um pertaining to the laundry of the cash monies in the Pacific Northwest. I would urge you to be persuaded to call your congressman and ask them to do something about that with their DEA money that they're extorting from you for taxes, for the war on all kinds of stuff, but particularly drug money. Did you know that the Treasury can put a sanction on drug cartels? Oh, yeah. They put a sanction on MS-13 because that was was Donald Trump's big bad guy, their big bad hombre. It's like he didn't see the other Mexican cartels at the border, which is, I don't know. I don't know why he didn't. Make them all, like, real bad guys. But it's because they could... I guess he could see their tattooed faces in, in the New York Strip. I think that's why he got on, they got on the bad Christmas... The naughty Christmas list for criminals to, to be uh, forced into that place. It can still be done. If you call your congressman and say, Listen, FinTrack is a sanction... For drug cartel criminal organizations, transnational criminal organization, you can do it. Please, Congress. Please, Congressperson. Make this. Make Do my bidding. Do as I ask. Please put them on that sanctions list. And then the DEA can go get their money. And then all of the impetus for this happening might be able to stop. It's just a creative idea. Maybe maybe you can be inspired by it. I don't know. It's my form of activism because I, I don't think this really should be tolerated. And it just so happens that the revelation during this podcast 
which is a not a BS podcast, by the way. We are discussing significant things that are impacting our country because over 100,000 people died in America due to fentanyl poisoning. This is no joke. So if you take their money, why, why else would you sell fentanyl if there wasn't any money involved? You know, and I, I guess that would be a question between the drug enforcement cadre and maybe the cartels. I know I'm not that person. They're not going to call me to, like, organize a raid at 3 a.m. They're not going to do that. They're not going to call your congressman to do the same thing. But your congressman can call the DEA and file a criminal complaint on your behalf and say, would you please investigate this, this matter, that happens to be happening in Canada, but also happening in San Francisco and also happening in Las Vegas and also happening in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. So, I mean, I think that those are all plausible outcomes in terms of things that you could reach for, for things to do. So uh, I don't typically editorialize at the end of these, but um, typically I would I would say yeah let's take calls, but but the readings haven't been like real great for calls. People just want to call in and listen. So uh, I think we're gonna stick with that plan. So I'm gonna get off the talk hunch here and um, invite you to come and return at 7:20 p.m for another reading, chapter 14, tonight at 7.20 p.m. So uh, that would be Tuesday. Today is today is uh, Tuesday. So that's, that's the date of this per- section of this recording. This prior recording took place on Friday. So this is like an addendum editorial piece that I'm just dropping in at the, at the end. Okay. All right, do well and be well, and uh, we will be looking out for you on Colin.com. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast Archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Colin. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you visit SheilaMDean.com.